You are listening to Natural Born Alchemist. Welcome to episode number 59 of the Natural Born Alchemist podcast. My name is Alex and I'll be your host. It's the last Sunday of the month. And as usual, I am going to play a pre-recorded talk. This time it will be another great gem from Terence McKenna. For those who don't know, Terence McKenna was a psychonaut, ethnobotanist, lecturer and author. He spoke and wrote about a variety of subjects including psychedelic drugs, plant-based entheogens, shamanism, metaphysics, alchemy, language, culture, technology and the theoretical origins of human consciousness. The talk I'm going to play was recorded probably sometime in 1987 and it's called What's So Great About Mushrooms? The good thing with this talk is that in the beginning part, Terence explains in detail his stoned ape theory, which basically suggests that the missing link in the human evolution, how we went from stupid monkey to thinking being, is psychedelics. So it's all thanks to some stoned ape. He also goes into talking a bit about a highly secretive cult known as the Lucinian Mysteries. This cult vanished almost 2,000 years ago, pushed to the side by another cult on the uprising, Christianity. But in its heyday, the Eleusinian Mysteries held an initiation ceremony of great importance at Eleusis in ancient Greece every year, and it has been suggested that they partook of some sort of psychedelic at these events. And what came after it, if not the birth and rise of the so-called modern and civilized world? Can psychedelics be the seed of both our intellectual evolution as well as our cultural? But, you might say, if everything we have in society today is a legacy from the ancient Greeks, and if those creators of our present culture took part in spiritual ceremonies, then why are we so lost in materialism, in wars and in pollution? Aren't such initiations supposed to enlighten the mind and reveal the connection with nature? Albert Hoffman, a Swiss scientist known best for being the first person to synthesize and ingest LSD, gave some details on this in the excellent book The Road to Eleusis, unveiling the secrets of the mysteries. And I quote, Greece was the cradle of an experience of reality in which the ego felt itself separated from the exterior world. A precondition for the appearance of Western scientific research. In other words, we took another step in the evolution of the mind. But judging from the dogma spewing out of schools and media these days, we seem to think it was the last step. It never is and never was. To get back to Terence's talk, he also goes into a rant about symbiotic relationships. In other words, the notion that evolution is not really the survival of the fittest, but the survival of the most cooperative species, which I find to be a very interesting and fresh take on evolution. He also talks about the threats to the Amazon rainforest, and even though this talk is a few decades old, the threat to the Amazon has not really decreased, and is just a big of a concern now as it was in the 1980s. In conclusion, this talk is about the human journey from the tree to the starship. Enjoy. There is no scientific truth or new paradigm can arise 
in a vacuum vis-a-vis the opinions of the general informed public. If it doesn't fly with the general informed public, it doesn't matter what degree of internal rigor it has, an idea is probably doomed to uh, a kind of obsolescence or, or a kind of obscurity. So this idea that I want to put forth, which is the product of many people's thought on the subject, not the least of which is my brother Dennis, and I've developed the idea in conversations with Rupert Sheldrake and Kat and Ralph Metzner and other people over the years, is basically an extension of orthodox evolutionary theory as it applies to the question of human origins and then, having once established that part of the theory, going forward to try and see what kind of implications this revisioning of evolutionary mechanisms might have on contemporary life and the way in which we relate to ourselves and each other. The orthodox theory of human origins uh, takes the position that the evolution of human beings from higher primates was an evolutionary process no different than the evolutionary processes which had refined the mammalian forms which preceded the primates, nor is it thought to be any different from any other evolutionary process. There is no ontological difference hypothesized. However, I think that uh, using the language of the evolutionary biologists, we can show that there were factors present in the pre-human and early human environment that constellated a unique concatenation of events and genetic filtration devices which created the phenomenon of self-reflecting language using culture-creating animals on this planet. Orthodox evolutionary theory takes the position that as the African continent became subject to an increasing period of dryness, which may have initially begun as early as two million to a million and a half years ago, that the general tropical forest which covered the continent uh, began to retreat in certain areas where water was a constraint, and grasslands arose. The arboreal primates, which were occupying a kind of climaxed evolutionary niche in the tropical forests before this aridity began, suddenly found themselves under pressure because the forests were disappearing. By changing their gait and learning to walk on the surface, by changing their diet and learning to include meat, and and by refining their symbol processing capability, they transformed themselves from tribes of arboreal monkeys into creatures much more like the modern baboon 
In other words, they became omnivorous, pack-hunting animals capable of moving over the ground at high speed and capable of exchanging a large number of vocal signals that related to uh, exchange of information about hunting strategies, splitting, uh, because, as I neglected to mention, simultaneous to these evolutionary changes in the higher primates, other mammals were evolving in an opportunistic situation vis-a-vis the grasslands into the many forms of ungulate animals which graze on the grasslands of Africa. Not only cattle, but ibexes and giraffes and many forms which are now extinct. These, the primates and the higher mammals then came into a relationship where both were competing for the grassland and one became the primary predator on the other. Now, the, one of the curious and unexplained things about the major psychotropic plants that occur on this planet is that several of them are remarkably involved with the human culture and the domestication of plants. I'm thinking uh, of the ergotized rye, which figures in the Eleusinian Mysteries. Rye was a domesticated grass that, through uh, selection, had been bred into this uh, large kernel cereal grain Similarly, the psychedelic mushrooms, which are most noticeable in nature, are the so-called coprophytic ones, the ones which grow on manure. In the Pacific Northwest, there are numerous species of very ephemeral mushrooms which grow in the detritus of the forest floor. But as far as we know, the Northwest Coast Indians never noticed them sufficiently to utilize them as a shamanic vehicle. However, the coprophytic mushrooms are extremely noticeable in any environment because here you have this golden or silvery or golden yellow anomalous object uh, standing from four to seven inches high in the grassland and because it is coprophytic or manure-loving, they invariably aggregate in the droppings of these ungulate animals. Well, it's very clear that they could hardly choose a situation more opportune for their being encountered by uh, these omnivorous primates who are preying on these herds of animals. So that... And I should mention that there is, it's assumed that there was considerable pressure on the availability of protein in this grassland situation. In other words, everybody was running hungry. And if you've ever seen films or actually observed the behavior of baboons in the wild, they, are, they pick things up and look at them, and they sniff the ground. And this is their main behavior pattern, is sniffing the ground and picking things up and looking at them and testing them to eat them. Well, uh, very, uh, almost, I would say, coincident upon these factors all converging on the African veldt, 
the mushroom would then become included as part of this omnivoric diet of these primates. Now, I mentioned uh, when I talked on the radio today this very important series of experiments by Roland Fisher, who was one of the great and really un... uh, he isn't given the credit he deserves, one of the great researchers into altered states. He's retired now and lives on Mallorca. But he did a series of experiments which were a model of behaviorist rigor. He had an apparatus which had two parallel bars which could be deformed by rotating a a crank which would impart mechanical pressure to one of the bars so that it would be torqued and slowly parallelism would be lost between these two bars. And he gave psilocybin in uh, small amounts to hundreds of people and sat them down in front of this apparatus and told them to watch the situation with the two parallel bars and to press the buzzer when they felt that the two bars were no longer parallel. And he did it with hundreds and hundreds of controls. All of this work was done at the University of Maryland in the early 70s. And he showed, to the satisfaction of everyone, I think, that the people who were given the um, subthreshold doses of psilocybin were able to pick up this deformation faster than the controls, the unstoned ordinary subjects. And he said to me, jokingly, this proves, you see, that drugs give you a truer picture of reality than being straight. But it was quite so. What he he didn't uh, then make the leap to ask the question, well, then what impact would this increased visual acuity have had on an animal which was including this mushroom in its diet? And the answer is, if you were, as a matter of course, where you were eating all protein available in your diet, including this vision acuity improving compound, you would gain an adaptive advantage over individuals of your species which were not including this item in their diet. And and this is just as straight an exposition of the evolutionary mechanism as could ever be given. There's nothing uh, wild-eyed about it. And the conclusion is that very quickly any primate not including this item in its diet would would be uh, written out of the picture by being maladaptive. Well, that's what happens when you take psilocybin in the subacute dose, but obviously it would be explored at all dosage levels. Now, it has another curious property, which a number of researchers have, uh, have noted, a property of the mushrooms, which is that they seem to activate or stimulate the language-forming center of the brain, whether that's a physical location or simply a name for a set of functions. It seems clear that psilocybin, by its ability to inspire glossolalia, inner voices, spontaneous shamanic singing, etc., operates on the symbolic uh, uh, processing parts of the brain. 
These were, recall, pack-hunting animals, which had already evolved a complex set of signals arising first out of their arboreal existence and then transferred into this pack-hunting mode. So it's reasonable, I think, to suggest that psilocybin can be seen in that situation as a catalyst for language. It is a catalyst for greater visual acuity and hence hunting prowess, and it is a catalyst for greater hunting prowess expressed through a uh, greater facility for the processing of symbols. At a still higher level, it, this gives way, of course, to the shamanic experience that we associate with psilocybin, which is the visionary state that does not have any obvious evolutionary efficacy, basically because you lie down and close your eyes and don't move around and cease to be an actor uh, on, the, on the stage of, uh, of uh, Darwinian competition. So I think it's reasonable to suggest that uh, the development of language and the dominance of this particular uh, adaptation of the primates can be put down to the fact that there was a catalytic enzyme in the diet which was pumping this to the detriment of all its competitors. For instance, the, the other great apes, the gorillas and the orangutans, did not adapt the omnivorous strategy, did not adapt the running gait, and they are, of course, in danger of extinction and never achieved high culture at all, uh, except, of course, for cocoa. So, uh, this, I think, is the hidden factor. Now, this may not sound revolutionary, but ever since the notion of a human descent from a primate ancestor has been articulated, the search has been for the missing link in the form of a transitional skeleton which would show that there was no question that one had become the other. And while skeletons have come to light, reflective of various stages in this process, it's still unsatisfying to the evolutionary anthropologist to try and explain the speed with which this process happened. The, the fact that in the last uh, 30,000 to 50,000 years, the brain of human beings has evolved more than in the previous three million years. And so what I want to suggest to you and to the community of people who are concerned with the mechanics of human evolution so what we need to be looking for is an exogenous catalyst to this sudden burst of primate development. And I think that it can be found in the presence of these psychoactive compounds uh, in the food chain. Now, at a slightly later stage, this, as cognition and self-reflection and language are all beginning to template onto reality, it seems very clear to me that the cattle would be seen as the source of the mushroom. The mushroom seem, would seem to that mentality as obviously a product of the cow as milk, meat, or fuel, meaning the dried manure burned as fuel, so that the mushroom was a gift of the cow, you see. 
And then the experience of the mushroom is the experience of this feminine informational matrix that knits everything together and infuses it with numinosity, but it is specifically feminine. So another implication of all this is that the goddess cattle religions of, of prehistoric Africa and the ancient Middle East are actually Trinitarian religions of which the, the esoteric third member of the Trinity is a psychedelic uh, compound, probably the psychedelic compounds contained in the mushroom. In the 19th century, in the first wave of comparative mythology, which was headed up by Fraser and that school, much energy was expended on the notion of the great vegetation goddess and how this was seen to be evident in all the cults of the old world, the cults of Tammuz and Attis and uh, Sibyl. These were all seen to be uh, particularized historical expressions of the great vegetation goddess. I want to suggest that, uh, that this vegetation goddess was not a... They make it out as a kind of generalized awareness of the fecundity of nature expressed in the bounty of vegetable, uh, of vegetable nature, which I'm sure metaphorically it was that, but I think it's reasonable to suggest that it was focused quite tightly on this image of the mushroom. Now, uh, the only previous foray into uh, trying to inculcate mushrooms into early human origins is, as I'm sure you're aware, Gordon Wasson's effort to show that the Ayurvedic, or I'm sorry, the Prevedic sacrament Soma was uh, Amanita muscaria. Amanita muscaria is an intoxicating mushroom. It does not contain psilocybin. The uh, spiritual worth of it seems closely bound to the cultural context. It seems very hard for people who have not been brought up in the tradition of Arctic shamanism to actually get a good connection with it. Nevertheless, Wasson wanted to suggest that it was Indo-Aryan people coming out of the Caspian Sea area and into Mesopotamia carrying with them a mushroom cult that they then deified as Soma and then forgot in the Vedic centuries where they were establishing themselves in India. I think that a, a different view might well be that these Vedic people, when they swept down from the Caspian Sea area, encountered a mushroom religion and that was a goddess cattle religion. You see, Amanita muscaria is not symbiotic to cattle. It's symbiotic to birch trees. It has an entirely different uh, kind of symbiotic relationship. So that I want to suggest, based mostly on the fact that I think it's clear that psilocybin is the kind of chemical compound which could have worked the kinds of changes we're talking about, to suggest that psilocybin was the factor in the environment, but that the story may be 
that these Aryan peoples had to accept the mushroom that they found the goddess people using and then carried that to India. Now, this tradition occurs as late in the West as the Eleusinian Mysteries, which Wasson made a strong case that the Eleusinian Mysteries were ergotized rye beer, that a non-toxic strain of Claviceps paspali was actually infecting the rye which grew on the Eleusinian plain, and that a beer was brewed out of this, which was the intoxicating sacrament of Eleusis. His case is very convincing. However, he doesn't mention the strongest competitor in terms of an interpretation of the Eleusinian mystery, which is that uh, Robert Graves showed that the recipes for the Eleusinian ambrosia always contained words which could be arranged in such a way so that the first letters, when read downwards, would spell out the word mushroom in Greek. This is called an ogham, O-G-H-A-M, and I'm sure you're all familiar with it. (laughs) And he showed that the ingredients of the Eleusinian ambrosia, which were always listed as honey, barley, something else, and water, and he said, what kind of an ingredient is that? Everybody knows that water is an ingredient of beer, but he said the word water is always present in order to provide the letter which is necessary to form this cryptogram which explains that it was really mushrooms. It's interesting that uh, Greek culture is, there was a school of scholarship in the early 19th century which held that high Greek culture was derivative from Mycenae, the Mycenaean kingdom of which the house of Atreus were the ruling family. Well, this M-Y-C sound is a mushroom uh, sound. It's philologically a clue. The, uh, The island of Mykonos, if you look in a modern Greek dictionary, for the etymology of the island of Mykonos, you find that it is the island of the little bald-headed man. (laughs) Well, now I ask you. (laughs) So Mykonos, Mycenae, these are words which clue us to the fact that very early, and the word mucus is also in there and and lays the basis for mycophobia in, in later languages. So... So what's so great about all this? Well, <laughs> what's so great about it is, first of all, it offers, it, it, it provides a kind of mechanism for seeing how something as complex and self-reflecting as ourselves could emerge from the background of, uh, of animal nature without a deus ex machina without the hand of God intruding into nature, we see rather that it's simply a set of very sophisticated mechanisms of catalysis and filtration which promote certain things, a certain kind of binocular vision, certain kinds of information processing, and certain kinds of experiences which then language, you see, seeks to template. And they... The, these 
pack hunting monkeys, once they had the sacrament of mushroom intoxication, had an object for the inner ocean of language to beat against in an effort to describe and encompass and communicate it that laid the basis for religion. The word religion is related and based in the idea of origins. Religio is the going back to the origins. It also has, this idea also has an implication for the modern dilemma of attempting to relate to drugs. I mean, what are they? Are they good? Are they bad? Are they the scourge of the devil or the portal to enlightenment? What are they? And I'm speaking now of plant compounds. How are we to relate to the plants which intoxicate? Do they drive us mad? Or do they return us to the religio, to our own origins? Are we to see the states of mind which they invoke as tremendously alien? Or are we to see them as, in fact, uh, a way of going back to the primary situation in which everything that we call human found genesis. And I think that uh, because science is the reigning religion of the modern world, if you want to change people's minds about something, you have to get scientists to change their minds. And what evolutionary biology, to its uh, detriment, has ignored is the role of all forms of symbiotic relationships in nature. The Darwinian idea of evolution is, you know, it's a world of fang and claw, and the swiftest, the cruelest, uh, the largest, the fastest, these dominate. The actual situation is has been seen to be now for about 30 years, but the implications are making their way very slowly into orthodox evolutionary theory is actually cooperation is what nature seeks to consolidate and conserve and it is the species which can make itself most uh, user-friendly to its neighbor species which actually survives. That's why, you know, there is hardly a tree which grows on this planet without a mycorrhizal relationship to a fungi. A mycorrhizal relationship means that the tree cannot grow and live unless the roots are covered by a fungus, which is a completely independent organism, but which mediates the buffering and transport of mineral salts and that sort of thing. And makes the exterior environment palatable to the tree. Now, I mentioned today on the radio, many of these relationships start out as parasitic, but a parasite is either an evolving or unsuccessful symbiote because there is no uh, percentage in a biological relationship where you kill the host. And this is what parasites do. They are lethal, and they spoil the party. They kill the host, and then the guests have nowhere to go. And that's a crisis for host and guest, you see. But 
over time, these lethal uh, parasitic relationships evolve into symbiotic relationships where each party is contributing something to the well-being of every other party. And this is what happened in the situation with the mushroom, the human beings, and the cattle. The domestication of cattle uh, ensured their survival. We don't have, there are numerous ungulate animals that we can only see in museums, and it's because it was easier to kill them than to domesticate them, because they were either very wild and unruly or very large. You do not herd mastodons. <laughs> so that the cattle, by being taken into the human family, then there is a reciprocal relationship. Human beings are no longer under such pressure to hunt. There is availability of abundant protein. The, gen the genetic race of the cattle are preserved. And all this is mediated by a mushroom whose continued existence is dependent on the continued existence and numerical expansion of the population of cattle. So this is a relationship where everyone wins, and consequently it is preserved through time. Uh, we know that in shamanic uh, tradition throughout the world, human beings are using plants to gain knowledge and to cure disease. What has escaped our attention because of our anthropocentric point of view is that the plants which confer these abilities on human beings are therefore made cultivars and taken out of the stream of evolutionary selection and instead they become objects of culture and are cultivated and are preserved and even hybridized and uh, they in a sense become a kind of episome on the human genetic heritage. This understanding about how nature works is what is absent in the modern world at the top of the pyramid and is what is making everything so lethal because we see nature we, I mean the corporate elites, the dominant uh, political ideologies, see nature as an enemy. And this is why drugs are taboo, because drugs are, these plant drugs, are an immersion in this symbiotic field of information. They are a reaching out to this original situation, which is very unsettling. I mean, we build cities and we put a wall around them. The desacralizing of natural space is the process of cutting it into grids and erecting flat, planar surfaces along those grids to cut out the influx of energy that is part of, uh, of the natural world. Now, you know from listening to me go on on this subject that I believe that uh, this is all a plot of some sort. In other words, that it is no mere coincidence that this mushroom was there in those cow pies. But notice that it need not be a plot. It could simply be an extremely unlikely concatenation of events which leads to the production of self-reflecting thinking human beings. However, uh, the visual acuity 
even the stimulation of the language center, these things uh, are, um, do not address the informational content of the experience of the mushroom, which seems to be that of an other, an intellecti of some sort, which is either the overmind of the species or a very unusual kind of extraterrestrial organism which drifted in here millions and millions of years ago and has somehow inculcated itself into the environment, or it, it, is, uh, it, it is like a, a, the world soul, that there is actually a, uh, a uh, controlling uh, governor of the planetary ecology that can address a species coherently in its own language. This is not something which orthodox anthropology has to take account of and certainly is not in a hurry to do so <laughs> because this challenges the most basic assumptions about, uh, about what is possible. Nevertheless, I think you know, that as we peel away uh, the onion of nature things are going to get stranger and stranger and stranger to the limits of our ability to conceive it, almost. And that the, because of, essentially, Christianity, uh, we have been, our connection to the origins, to the goddess and the planet and what we as moderns call the unconscious, but that ocean of depersonalized information that you access with these plant hallucinogens. Because of Christianity, we have been cut off from this. Whatever Christianity was, it was a historical episode where the most patriarchal rap extant on the planet was suddenly pumped full of so much energy that everything else was just shoved to the walls. And, uh, and the submergence, the giving up of the ego that is represented by the worship of the goddess in the orgiastic and intoxicating rites that reached back to prehistory was suppressed very definitely in favor of structure and order and paternalism and these sorts of things. And drive as we might, this is the legacy upon which we must uh, uh, restructure our worldview. We can't do anything about the historical momentum that Christianity has imparted to our expectations. All we can do about it is raise it to consciousness, examine it, and then try and think our way around it. But it gives rise because it was the heir to the late Hellenistic tradition of dualism, it gives rise to these tremendous divisions between the natural and the human world, between self and world, between you and me, between life and death. You see, it's a, it's a, 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 a splitting apart, a conceptual syzygy, it's almost a linguistic strategy of conceptual syzygy, which leaves you no room to touch your origins. This lore, this understanding of human-plant interactions is 
slipping through our fingers at a tremendous rate. The last time I was in the Amazon, I can't even remember, I guess it was 83 or 87 or something. Anyway, we were on the track of a, a orally active DMT drug called Ukuhe, and it had only been used by two tribes of Indians, and it was way up this river. And we got there at the point where we could find people who said, I think I know what you're talking about. And I saw, as a child, I saw my father prepare this thing. But I have never done it myself, but I will attempt it for you. In other words, we were either too late or almost too late. And this situation is repeated over and over again. And it's not only hallucinogens, believe me. Uh, drugs of medicinal worth in all kinds of areas, antibiotics, uh, antidepressants, uh, uh, drugs which control malaria, drugs which control intestinal parasites uh, and knit bones, and all of these things are in danger of being lost because uh, the cultures are being so spectacularly disrupted by consumer capitalism. No one is taking care to preserve this folkloric medical information and the physical plants which it addresses. We can never return to the state of primal innocence that prevailed on this planet 10,000 years ago. The best we can hope for is to cover our tracks and turn the planet into a garden and build machines which will pull all the plastic and metal and glass out of the soil and restore, conserve, and treasure. And uh, this applies to the folk knowledge of these aboriginal and pre-literate people who, as we penetrate the implications of the psychedelic experience, will be seen to be, in some areas, in advance of us. In, our, in their mapping of what all this means. We are not the most advanced culture on the planet. We are merely the most silicon technology advanced culture on the planet. But there's a great deal that we have to learn. However, we are the most destructive and corrosive culture on the planet. It is we who are destroying the Witoto and the Aguaruna Hivaro and the Kikuyu and all of these coherent human traditions that existed in equilibrium for 20, 30, 50,000 years until the advent of colonial imperialism a couple of hundred years ago. So I always try to argue from these extreme, and people say I'm an escapist, or that I just, it's, uh, you know, fluff, you can say anything. But really my goal is to change people's minds and to show that the real situation supports the notion that we should change our minds, that we should revision these things, and that we should try to come to grips with all of the opportunities and all of the resources that humanity has amassed in its journey from the trees to the starship. 
After Terence held this talk, there was a question and answer session, which I don't think is necessary to play. But there was one small part that I thought was very good when Terence goes into a long spiel about psychiatry. Let's listen to it. Leary and the whole episode in the 1960s proved it can't succeed if it's waged as a mass movement. It's a hell of a party. <laughs> but it doesn't in the end. You have to... Uh, you have to get science. You have to subvert it in some way. I assume the front door is locked. You have to subvert science in some way. And my, I have studied science from the point of view of a man with a catapult searching the walls of a great keep for its point of weakness. And I think, dear friends, that psychology is the place to put the pressure on. You see, around the turn of the century, uh, science was really erecting its tent, and you had uh, the phrenologists, those were the people who felt the bumps on your head and said whether you had criminal tendencies or not. You had palmistry. You had a, a number of the... Uh, homeopathy is a good example. You had a number... And psychology. Psychologists, recall, were called alienists in the pre-Freudian period. And all of these... Uh, Theories about human types were in furious competition to get themselves declared a science because they sensed that otherwise you were reduced to quackery. Well, the phrenologists couldn't bring it off. My impression is the homeopathists only convinced themselves. The palmists convinced not a great number of people, but the psychologists actually brought it off. And uh, around the mumbo-jumbo of Freudian analysis, they were able to claim that they had a science that uh, described what was going on with human beings. The truth is, I believe, that psychology though well-meaning, I mean, I don't cast aspersions on their intentions, but I think its uh, effectiveness is close to zero. It depends entirely on the personality of the therapist. Reichian, Freudian, uh, Jungian, you name it. 30% get better, 30% get worse, and 30% stay the same. What this means is that the theories are no good. It's just the people are either good, bad, or indifferent. One in three, you see. So psychology is, needs tools. Psychology needs uh, ways into the psyche beyond uh, what it has previously had available. And I think most psychologists, psychiatrists who thought about this understand that drugs are the way to do it. That you, you, the way you study the atom is you smash it and then you pick up the pieces and weigh them and calculate their trajectories and all this. The way you study the psyche should be by perturbing it. You know, you cannot figure out what's going on with a pond of still water unless you drop a rock into it and then you see waves move out and you say, oh my gosh, it's a fluid medium. It has a shifting refractive index. It has all these properties. This is a reasonable strategy for understanding anything. And, and uh, the fascination with shamanism is, I think, the sign 
that psychology is willing to own up to the fact that it is desperate for new insights into human dynamics. So I am hopeful that we can arrest the attention of psychologists and get them looking at shamanism, all of shamanism, even the parts which are perhaps less effective than the intoxicating and hallucinogenic plants, but studying how sound drives imagery and how uh, certain kinds of linguistic expectations lead to certain kinds of results. And so this garden in Hawaii, which will appeal, as I say, to chemists and taxonomists and botanists. But these are established sciences with established methods which will simply inculcate us into their uh, triumphal forward march. But there is actually a possibility of revisioning psychology, of changing it. Uh, uh, the, one of the great things, I think, about uh, the recent uh, flap about Adam was that unnoticed in all the shilly-shallying that went back was a, a new paradigm actually was introduced into the practice of psychotherapy, a paradigm that has been absent for thousands of years. It was the notion that the doctor takes the drug. <laughs> in some cases, you know, that has been absent. There is no concept of that in Western medicine. That really is a new paradigm. So, uh, what a garden such as I'm describing would do in Hawaii is it would simply lower the energy barriers, make it easier for these uh, professionals to explore these areas which otherwise uh, might be closed to them for institutional or financial reasons. Both these recordings have been lifted from the Psychedelic Salon podcast, which can be found at psychedelicsalon.com. I will post links to this site in the program notes at naturalbornalchemist.com. Now, let's listen to some acid. I will play a track from an artist that is called C418, and the track is called Minecraft is Acid, from the album Life Changing Moments See Minor in Pictures. See you in a week. Freedom is in the mind. Thank you.